Welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast. We have stories of growth and transformation. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Scholes. Jim is known as an immensely successful consultant and an academic. Jim, do you want to talk a little bit about your career journey? Happy to do that. I think I'm um, not a great advert for career planning. I've moved around a little bit. I've had three uh, phases of career. I started off in the public sector working in uh, UK government. I went from there in the early 80s into the computer industry. And then in the late 80s, based on some experience accumulated in both government and the computer industry, I moved across to consulting and got involved in setting up uh, a number of boutique strategy consulting firms. In terms of the academic and consulting uh, career, I suppose the first time I did uh, some kind of consulting was actually the late uh, 60s. When I was in the public sector and I was trained by Arthur Young and Company, which of course became part of Ernst & Young. And I was trained in the techniques of work measurement and organization and methods. So we can go right back uh, to uh, use of data and, and the way that people actually behave in organizations. So that was my initial training and then moved on to doing systems analysis and some programming in government and ended up at the Central Computer and Telecommunications Agency, which was an interesting location to practice some consulting skills across government departments and eventually led to a connection with Peter Chetland and the team from Lancaster University who were employed to do a system study. And the work done with Peter and his colleagues from Lancaster eventually led on to me doing a PhD at Lancaster and uh, uh, building my uh, career, which kind of straddled uh, consulting and academia. And I, I mostly worked with uh, systems ideas, and I mostly worked with those ideas in the context of corporate or global strategies, and in particular, innovative strategies and strategies for growth. And nowadays, I still do a certain amount of consulting activity and lecture occasionally. Really an amazing career journey. It's one of those sort of careers you, you could, could never have put together and planned at the outset because of all the, the moving pieces. Meeting up with Peter Checkland proved to be quite a, a turning point, didn't it, in your, your career? And I was very lucky. Um, lucky not just to meet uh, Peter and the folks from Lancaster, who at the time were working with some pioneering ideas about how systems thinking could be used in uh, fairly complex organizational situations. But also lucky, I now realize, in the sense that working as a consultant on the kinds of assignments that I've been involved in has provided a personal license to go in and delve into how organizations work and actually learn quite a lot in the process. So I think it's a re real uh, privilege in many sense, which consultants ought to appreciate when they're given license to go and uh, delve into a working organization. It's not something to be taken lightly. No, it's not. It's not because you've handed the keys to the safe, really, aren't you? You're given all of the access to everything that is working and isn't. 
there's a lot of people skills, isn't there, to get into that sort of point where you can become that kind of person that's able to, to help them take a, a complex and tricky issue forward. Indeed. I think one of the things one comes to appreciate is that the, the most important reference point that potential clients have when they think about uh, employing you as a consultant is the references that come from others that you've worked with. And if you've worked satisfactorily in one kind of environment and there's a feeling amongst the top management group, maybe the owners, that you've delivered something worthwhile or helped them to do something worthwhile, then their willingness to share that as a reference with others is the basis for building, I think, an interesting consulting business. Yeah, that's so vital to have that kind of reference point. And in a way, it's the, the only thing really that separates those who are kind of mediocre or possibly less consultants from those who are really uh, able to make a huge difference to organisations. I think so one of the things that may be surprising to many is that the, the currency is really about the outcomes that have been achieved through the work rather than some kind of assessment of what is your expertise. Whatever you think your expertise may be, and maybe you've judged it well, whether it be in terms of handling data, for example, or modeling, or in the softer issues of organizational psychology and, and so forth, whatever you think your expertise is, that may get you an entry to a conversation, but it won't necessarily help you to build a business. What you will ultimately be judged on is, did you help this client achieve the outcomes that they were looking for? And those outcomes can be quite broad in nature. They're often about matters of strategy and content and so forth, but equally well, they're often about behavioral changes that they're looking for in the organization, changes that are being looked for in, in the culture or way of working in the organization. And outcomes can only be appreciated after the event. So did you deliver what was promised? Yeah, absolutely. There are, there are many people who walk around with all sorts of badges about where they are and all sorts of titles. But in the end, consultancy comes down to, can you deliver? Can you deliver on something that the client asked you to put together? You, you will ultimately be judged on what is done over time. Are you consistent? Do you do? You, deliver what you promised to deliver. And one of the difficulties in building a consulting practice is that like most accounting and legal firms, the business model is based on um, uh, price per hour of certain assets, consulting assets. I don't know about you, but I'm not too keen to uh, pay by the hour for, for accountancy advice. I think I'm much more inclined uh, to pay for value. But value can only be demonstrated after the event. So in a sense, in agreeing what it is that's to be done in a client organization, one has to put some skin in the game, take some level of risk. For better or worse, we developed a model which was around having a potential upside if we helped the client achieve significant benefits so that we could calculate together what the value of those benefits would be and share in the upside. And generally that worked uh, pretty well. It was motivational for us, but it, it was also, I think, clear to the client that we were serious, that we weren't simply trying to 
sell more time. We were actually focusing on helping them achieve results. I think one also has to be humble enough to recognize that most times going into these situations, one doesn't have the answer. You don't know in advance what the answer will be. You have to have enough grounding and enough serious research and data and so on to provide context. You have to have enough appreciation of some of the internal dynamics and blockages to understand what difficulties you might face, that the answer isn't known in advance, nor can it be if you're looking for something that is indeed innovative and new. And the consultant's role, as I see it, is in a sense, helping people in the client's organization at different levels, ranging from the top management group through to certainly middle management, you have to help folks at those different levels go on their own learning journey. Because if they're looking for transformational change, if they're looking for something new, then they're going to be faced with some new lessons, some new learning, some things they have to maybe learn from elsewhere. The challenge is not just to help them work through those learning journeys, but to connect the different groups at different stages. We were fortunate enough to work with Nokia between about 93 and 95, when the company went from essentially being bankrupt through to becoming a sort of major player in the emerging mobile technologies. And in that particular circumstance, and in some other similar cases, what we were helping the client to do was to set up different kinds of uh, dialogue across the company. We created what were labeled at the time temporary structures, for example, a strategy panel to talk about strategy. It had no uh, organizational route, but it gave people at a senior level the opportunity to talk about challenges in a different way. It was to one side of the main organization. They had working groups in various areas of emerging uh, technology and marketplace change. And those things were connected together to help them figure out some of the options uh, for future growth. It's a really fascinating time to be part of Nokia. As you say, they were on that journey to being the global primary telephone supplier, a position that sort of Apple now holds. And so it must be absolutely fascinating being part of that. But also, I should imagine, quite scary because you don't go into an organization with a set of answers. I think anybody who does that is going to find that their set of answers aren't going to survive contact for more than a few seconds with the environment. And I should imagine that in a position where Nokia were in deep financial trouble, to move them then to a point where on slightly firmer foundations, there must have been a lot of pressure around. There must have been a lot of people expecting quite rapid results from you. How did you go about orchestrating that learning journey? We knew they were serious about the need for change. They were faced with a very difficult and challenging environment. There was a relatively new and relatively young top management team in place, and they were willing to put in some of their own time, which I think is one of the things I would now regard as a sort of precondition for any uh, transformation. I had meetings every week, every Friday afternoon with Yorma Olilla, who was the CEO. And they were 
not simply checkpoint meetings. They were actually quite tough discussions. Uh, I remember early on in the uh, process, uh, Jorma was not too thrilled with some of the judgments we've made. Uh, so we had to have a pretty serious discussion in which, if I kind of summarize it, I explained why we made the judgments we, we had and offered to take the team out if he thought we were wrong without charging him. At which point, I think it was reasonably clear we were both serious. And beyond that, we had a pretty good working relationship. The easy option would have been to change what we were doing, but it wouldn't have been, in, in my view at the time and in our team's view at the time, the right thing to do. Sometimes helping a client can be a painful process, not just for the consultant, but for the client as well. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it forces a client to face up to some of the things that perhaps they haven't wanted to before or haven't even been aware of. You, you just described perfectly a turning point where the, the CEO is, is then much more willing to engage with you, having seen that you're, you're serious about um, you know, necessarily putting your own resource in and stopping at that point. You're, you're also serious about going in a certain direction because you think that's the right thing to do. How, how did things run after that? I guess once you've got that working relationship with the CEO kind of cemented, presumably it was easier to make progress? That's a good question. Uh, there, there were some changes that were made, one, one of which was he took things a wee bit more seriously. He allocated the time of probably the most experienced senior executive in Nokia to work directly with us at least a couple of days a week. And also we created a different kind of ongoing dialogue, different kind of connection between the top management group, obviously headed by the CEO, and the more junior people, we started off with a team of probably 20 or 30, much more junior people working part-time, doing the sort of heavy lifting on strategy. And we connected them directly with the most senior group. We had regular meetings running between these two groups. What we did was we bring in these young folks from all different parts of the organization. They were very able. And we brought them into an environment where they were pitching their findings, some of which were pretty uncomfortable findings, but they were pitching their findings to the top management group. And we weren't intervening. We looked after the setup to ensure that these younger folks were not overly exposed at a personal level, so they weren't taking big risks. But we were also, on the other side, briefing the top management group as to how they could be most supportive to these folks who were, in a sense, the most precious resources available. They were the folks who were at the leading edge of the learning, and they were the folks who were likely to carry forward and implement the ideas that were coming through. So that kind of connection really began to take root, take place after the meeting I described with the CEO. Wow. What an excellent way to connect up an organization. So this kind of goes back to the the organizational theory that says you want to be making decisions as close to the sort of the, the bottom of the organization as you possibly can. And you've facilitated a way by which these relatively junior people could get their ideas up to the CEO, up to the board, and, and actually get some action on it. Because the, a, lot, a lot of the problem with big organizations and a huge pyramid is that there are people who've got some quite good ideas in there somewhere, but that tends to get filtered out. The organization, those great ideas, the wild and wacky, tend to be the first thing that anybody says, oh, don't do things like that around here. 
What a great way of being able to engineer some of those conversations. You said you, you didn't really provide editorial support so much for the ideas, but you were essentially there to help make sure that the individuals were themselves quite supported. If there were differences, those differences had to be explored. Hmm. But one of the things that we did to help demonstrate the credibility of the younger folks who were uh, driving the work was I remember at one meeting in the boardroom, we, we put a, a set of tables around the outside of the board table. And on those tables, we laid out copies of all of the reports and the data that the different teams had pulled together. So if anybody senior had a semi-serious question, they could literally go to the report, the piece of paper, the data point, and say, this is what this assertion is based on. And pretty soon we found that there was a degree of trust because no senior person wants to embarrass themselves by asking stupid questions about data that's clearly available. Wow. What a great way of being able to bring together the sort of the rational, the emotional and politics altogether by um, having that kind of support. That's fascinating. Well, what are the other sort of kind of highlights? Are there other, other areas that you would say, wow, it's, that was absolutely great to be involved in, going back maybe even to, to the uh, beginnings of your consulting career? I uh, was fortunate enough to move across from the Central Computer and Telecommunications Agency to ICL. And having worked with Peter Checkland and the Lancaster team at CCTA, I was then able to work with Peter and others in this ICL um, context where in the early 80s, ICL basically went bust. It was the UK flagship in computing. It was all a wee bit of a mess. And Margaret Thatcher came to power. Uh, she wasn't desperately keen to pour more money into failing enterprises. And I was lucky enough to be initially loaned to ICL. I was lucky in the sense that I couldn't be fired because I was on loan. But it gave me a chance to get involved in a number of internal change initiatives. ICL was sufficiently bust that couldn't really afford any of the big name consulting firms. So we figured out that what changes uh, had to be made had to be both figured out and implemented by the uh, internal management. I was able to work with folks who are in the top 100 managers in ICL. And we basically set up a number of working groups. I was involved in uh, working with a number of those, those groups, particularly looking at um, where there might be opportunity to reorientate ICL's rather the traditional mainframe business towards uh, software and uh, services. And some of this is, is touched on in the uh, the book that I co-wrote with uh, Peter Checkland. So there's a few specific examples in there of the work that was done. I, I would describe it as a process of a dialogue and actually getting managers in the problem situation to work on the problems. And there's generally no shortage of ideas. There is a shortage of time. So it had to be really efficient in terms of how that was done. And it was a sufficient state of flux that I don't think anybody was too bound by the organizational structure. I think that's one of the key lessons. You have to find temporary structures in order to create the opportunity for dialogue outside the day-to-day -day job. I remember working with a business in Europe in consumer goods that was seen as 
problematic from the point of view of its American parent. And it was seen as problematic because the profile of the business was very different to that which they experienced in the U.S. What they had in the U.S. was a volume-based business, uh, large volumes, branded product, reaching lots of outlets. In Europe, the balance of the business looked very different. There was less of the volume stuff and much more what was regarded at the time as complementary or supplementary or just sitting outside of the main business. And this was seen as a problem. Now, what was interesting in that context was that it really depends how you look at it. What we discovered was that the profile of the business in Europe was something that was underexploited in the US. And the opportunity was to grow the business in the US by taking the lessons from Europe rather than the other way around. Rather than shrinking the European business, expanding that business model globally, which in broad terms, I believe, generated a business of more than $2 billion. This was not something that was known at the beginning. And what was needed was to hold up a mirror and challenge the assumptions of people who were in the client organization. And I think probably the nicest bit of feedback that sticks with me from that was after what were quite successful outcomes, we were described as critical friends. And I think that's a pretty good relationship for a consultant to have with a client organization. Absolutely. It's a really difficult part of the consultancy activity, which is you're given something written on the tin initially about the original focus on that particular example was the European business. As a new consultant, I'm sure many would be very tempted to say, written on the tin, we need to do something with the European business. <laughs> it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to then go back and say, actually, there's some other things that could be done. But that all comes from the, the wonderful learning journey that you described, that sort of journey where everyone gets to a certain point, working through the rationality, the emotion, the politics of the situation, and trying to move step by step beyond that point. In all these cases, and I suppose if I try and reflect across the broader set, what I'd encourage, based on my experience, is to the extent that you can, as a consultant, do go in with an open mind. Don't kid yourself that you have all the answers before you've even started, whatever your level of experience. Every intervention, it, well, A, it's a privilege because you're being allowed to uh, go in and intervene and make some contribution. But B, it's a learning opportunity for yourself. If you're not learning th through each intervention, pro probably you're in the wrong business. I've enjoyed much of what I've done because I've had the chance to learn in a variety of uh, situations. And you can't always predict what it is you will learn. But I think going in with an open mind and being prepared to learn, and in that particular case that you touch on, the European business perhaps having lessons for elsewhere in the world, it was pretty clear early on that the presenting problem was founded on a set of untested assumptions. And when you started to ask questions, perfectly reasonable questions, but become a little bit Socratic about it all, and ask for evidence, and what, what's that based on? Where have we seen this? It all fell apart, and it, it became clear that there was a lack of understanding across the organization as a whole. 
there were different assumptions being made. Absolutely. As you say, the assumptions are really key. We, we all base a whole lot of uh, things on a set of assumptions, which were perhaps correct at one time, but things move and things change and we're in an evolving situation. It's really fascinating. This is the Evolving Enterprises podcast. Huge thanks to Jim Scholes for being my guest today.